Okay, we're going to turn to Matthew 18. Matthew, the 18th chapter. And this is revealing, and God would, would reveal this to us this morning. I can only say this, that what, what, what I'm going to preach this morning and trust God for is his exact counsel that he's, he's been giving to me the last few days. So this is very personal, and if God has uh, something to say to you, then he can say it to you. But I am telling you that this is something that God gave me in terms of his counsel, but that I believe he, he wants me to speak on it. So in Matthew, the 18th chapter, the verses that we're going to read are 21 and 22. I'll read those. And, I'll, and then we'll see the context. So Matthew 18, verse 21, it says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often when my brother sins against me, you notice he's talking about, it's a family relationship he's talking about, that my brother sins against me, should I forgive him? How many times? Should Seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say, not unto you un, until seven times, not only seven times, but until 70 times seven. That would be a lot. Can you imagine someone sinning against you, a brother, family member in Christ, sinning against you 149 times in one day? <laughs> and we would be required to forgive. Now, the reason it says that then came Peter is we have to see the verses preceding that. So in, in, in Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, Moreover, if your brother will trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's something we, that God's been teaching us for, for all of us you know, here for quite some time. And it's so very, very necessary because on this hangs so much of a proper experience, a proper image, and a proper function as individuals that do make up a local assembly, which is the body of Christ. So go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Because who do you have between you when you do it this way? You have Christ. If he will hear, hear you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then, then take with you one or two, two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he will neglect to hear them, if he refuses, see, this is proper order how we should deal with, with this uh, fact of forgiveness. You should take two or three. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. And if he will neglect to hear them, Tell it to the whole church, the whole local assembly. That, that, that let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. In other words, you love him, you're not, he's not your enemy. And we shared that this, this, uh, one of these mornings. I think it was Saturday, wasn't it, Jadiel, that, we, that, that, that that was shared. But how we should deal even with this area of, of forgiveness. So... Really, what, what it's saying here is, very clearly, we can see it in, in the Scriptures. It's in 1 Thessalonians 5, and in verse 12, we mention this, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And when you do that, you'll be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort, okay, we encourage, or... We, we beseech you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. In other words, unruly here is disorderly. Those that don't function in a proper order based upon the teaching in the local assembly, what are we to do? What are we to do? Try, try to win them? Or do we warn them that are disorderly? Comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, and be patient toward all, right? Be patient toward all. And so, and then how we do that and how we do it properly, too, uh, is very, very key, very, very key in the Word of God. So 
In 2 Thessalonians, we see this in 2 Thessalonians 3, and then we'll get back to Matthew 18, but in 2 Thessalonians 3, it says this in verse 13, but you brethren, but you brethren, be not weary in well-doing, and that's, well-doing is good works. It's the work that God is accomplishing in you through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what good works are. You brethren, be not weary in doing in, in good works. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, this word of God, note that man and have no company with him. Notice that? Whatever that man is that doesn't walk in obedience, that man or woman that doesn't walk in obedience, what are we to do? Now, is this still love? We're going to see that it is. And the only way to do it is in love. And have to, uh, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy. See how we should do that? Count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Remember we read in Matthew 18, uh, 15, if your brother trespass against you. So when Peter, then he came to Jesus, and we see that in Matthew 18 and verse 21. Then came Peter to him, to Christ, and said, Lord, you know, this whole idea of forgiveness and all of this, uh, what is this? And, and, and how often should my brother, you know, if he sins against me, should I forgive him? And Peter really thought he was doing something big when he said seven. When he said seven times. And I thought that was interesting. Seven times. Because what he was doing when he was saying that, if I understand the word. So if I see Amos uh, chapter 1 verse 3, and I see Amos uh, chapter 2 and verse 6. And I see Job 29, uh, 29, I believe it's 29 and 30. Uh, Job 29 and 30. It was required by the Jewish masters and by the teaching of the word that you were to forgive them three times. Three times you were to forgive them. That's the scriptures that I gave you. Uh, spell that out three times. So Peter thought he was doing something by doing four times that amount. Hey, what do you think, Lord? I know it's required by the law. <laughs> Three times. But how about seven? How about, what about me, Lord? Should I do it seven times? Should I forgive him seven times? And the reason that Peter was, was speaking this way, and the reason it was, is because that he had, through Christ, a consciousness that there was this new law of love. That new law of love is brought out very beautifully in John the 13th chapter. It starts out with love. Having loved his own, in John 13 verse 1, he loved them to the end. To their end where they have a face-to-face -face eternal beginning with him in that sense. But having loved his own, and then it goes into how he washed their feet. You see the types there are beautiful. They're beautiful. Jesus takes off his robes, and this is a picture of, he's laying aside his deity. All the glory that was his as, as the Son of God. And he puts on a, a slave's clothing to wash their feet. To wash their feet. And that's what forgiveness is. It's, it's our privilege to wash each other's feet. It's a privilege to wash each other's feet. And then it goes into, in John 13, by the time you, and then of course 13, 17 says, if you, do, if you know these things, if you know them through teaching, happy are you if you do them. Well, because it's going to be you and Christ, isn't it? Doing it so beautifully. And that was the new law that Jesus was bringing out in John 13, 34 and 35. You know, you to have love one for another. <laughs> Just think of it. There could be no God in our life. There could be no love without forgiveness. <laughs> it couldn't be. And so he had this consciousness of this new law. Peter did. Had this consciousness that Christ himself brought into this world, into this dark wilderness, this worldly wilderness. He brought in this new one. And though, but in Peter's mind, it was very obscure. It was very vague. Because he still had to learn he still had to learn things because he, in, in his own consciousness, apart from what Christ 
who Christ was and what he would accomplish in him, he would still function in a conscience that wasn't pure. And that's what all of us would uh, when we don't understand love and forgiveness and how there can be none. There can be no forgiveness without love, God, and there's no God without forgiveness. (laughs) That's how it works. And so he had it. But you know what he did in the obscurity of his conscience that hadn't yet been thoroughly cleansed experientially? The experiential reality of a cleansed conscience is brought out in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 1 and 2. We have it because we, our conscience has been cleansed from dead works operating in our flesh toward one another, away from God. But that conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We see that in, and uh, without the shedding of blood in Hebrews 9, verse 22, there's no remission, no canceling of sin. And then in Hebrews 9, verses 12 to 14, bring that out crystal clear in the Bible about what it cost God himself to be able to forgive us in, in perfect love and perfect justice had to give his son over to the cross. It's cost him so much. And do we value that? Is there value in what he's accomplished? Peter had this obscure idea, though, still, and still supposing that it was possible that God, who is love, could be somehow overcome by hate. Still had that. Why would he think that way? Why would he think that way? And why would any of us think that way? The reason is, is because what we do is, in our own obscurity, in a conscience that has not been cleansed experientially, what do we do? We limit. We put a limit to what we think, listen to this one, our forgiveness is. Well, whose forgiveness was it? We put a limit to it. We put a limit. We make choices. We choose. We make sides. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, and in Mark 9, verse 40, he said, he that is not with me is against me. He that is not with me, who is Jesus? God is. He that is not with me is what? Against me against me, to not forgive each other, to not do that, we are against Jesus Christ who accomplished it. But Peter, Peter thought that. The reason that he thought that, and the reason that a believer that functions in the flesh, and any of us can do that, the reason for that is, is that somehow we think in our own thinking, apart from God, that somehow in forgiving We will give up a right which we think we have in certain circumstances to exercise. Think about that. We think we have a right who, where, and when we should forgive and when we shouldn't. That's very obscure. Because did not Jesus pay for all of our sins and deal with them in his love and his forgiveness? He most certainly did. He did. And so, what is the purpose here of this parable that Jesus is teaching? This is what he's teaching us here, in a very obscure way in kingdom teaching. But we have far more greater light and responsibility and an accountability because he's given us the grace to be able to be obedient to this truth. Far more than even what they had in kingdom teaching. But here, even with kingdom teaching, what is he teaching? Jesus is making it clear to Peter and to those that were around him, that when God calls on a member of his kingdom, now we are married. Christ is our bridegroom. We are his bride. We're married to him, but we're still a part of his kingdom, to which, by the way, we're going to rule and reign with him forever because we're married to him, unlike Israel, who are his servants. But when we look at this and when we see this, when we see it, that when God calls on a member We see it here in the Word. When he calls on a member of his kingdom to forgive, God is not calling that individual to renounce a right, but that he has no right to exercise in the matter of forgiveness. Think about that. Absolutely no right. We have no right to choose who we forgive and who we don't. That right 
was crucified in the man, the old man of us, who was crucified with him. <laughs> crucified. Galatians 6, verse 14 brings that out crystal clear and uh, very, very clearly. He has no right to exercise in that matter of forgiven. Because asking for, when we ask, for forgiveness from God, and when we actually accept that forgiveness for ourselves, what are we doing? We're implicitly pledging ourselves to show it. Listen to that. When I, as a member of Christ, his bride, his body, his very flesh and bone, one with him, the fact that I ask and accept forgiveness makes me responsible and pledges me to show it. <laughs> it's so unbelievable. Boy, was God, he was giving me some really intense counsel about forgiveness, things I never heard to this degree. And so what is he saying? What is he saying? He's making it clear here in kingdom teaching that this is God's character through Christ as king. And those there, Peter, were his servants. You have a king who rules and reigns, and you have a servant. And who are we? You know, we can either choose to serve God through Christ and be a servant of Jesus Christ, and you can see that in Ephesians 5, walk in love as dear children, and that always means forgiveness, guys. It just does. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. To walk in love. We'll either, we'll either be a servant of Christ, Ephesians 3, 1, Ephesians 4, 1, a prisoner of the Lord. You know, Paul said, as great as we would like to make him out to be, and he was in terms of Christ, and who he was in Christ, what an amazing apostle and man of God he was. You know, the, the, be, the, the title that he wanted most and desired most and what God wanted most for him, you see it in Romans 1, verse 1. When you look at Romans, many have believed that that, Romans, is the gospel, the good news of Christ within the gospel. And there's a lot more to it that goes into it in detail. But he said in Romans 1, verse 1, I am a servant. I am a servant of him. I serve him. He who forgives me has given me that to forgive. <laughs> That's the whole message of soul winning. What makes an effective soul winner? One who's been loved and forgiven and goes out and tells them. We see it in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, 20, and 21. And we give these scriptures because it gives us clear, precise thinking in the flow of the thought that God's giving us this morning. And so, what an amazing thing. So, what does he do then? What does he do? What, what would he do with Peter? What would he do with the believer who refuses forgiveness and functions in the flesh. You know what he does? He brings in the preaching of the law. He brings in the preaching of the law because tell me who could fulfill it. We know Christ did in Romans 10, 4 and Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Christ did. But who apart from him can fulfill it? I mean, in James 2.10, if I offend in one point, I'm guilty of all. One part of it I break. It's over. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It just, it just does. What part of it then? What part of it? And no wonder, look at what it says, and I'll read this scripture. Look at what it says here. And this is quite a thought as we go through this this morning and as God took me personally through this. And every verse that God is bringing back to my memory right now, he gave me in detail. <laughs> in detail. Listen. This is 1 Timothy 1.9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. It's not. But for the lawless and disobedient. So God says, listen, you don't want to obey the truth about what Christ has accomplished in grace and love, unconditional love and forgiveness. Then the only teacher, the next, you know who, what teacher you have is what? Is your own disobedience. Your own disobedience. For the ungodly and for sinners. For unholy and profane. 
And on and on, look at what it says all the way through to the 10th verse. Some pretty intense things there. Because all these areas are potential in the flesh. You may not think that you could do them. Little do we know how far we would have gone in sin hadn't he got a hold of us. He does. Some of those sins that we hate about others, because you know why we hate them so bad? It's because the germ, the seed of those, is right within our own heart in the flesh, not in who we are in Christ. Sometimes what we hate most about other believers is that very thing that's just in here. Maybe it hasn't come out yet publicly, but God sees it in Psalm 90, verse 8, in secret. So he uses, he brings in the preaching of the law. And you know what he does? He sets, he sets before us our sins right to our face. Now, does he see us after them? No, Job 36, 7. But when I live in disobedience, in comes the law because I refuse him who is my true master. You'll see this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. We we're not under the law anymore. We're under a new master. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to the end of ourselves in Romans 5, 7, 12, and 13. To bring us to the end of ourselves. The things we can't do, we do. You know, the things I don't want to do, I do. Things that I know I should do. There's just reasons for all these things. And that brings it out. He brings those sins to our face. And then he, what does he do? He leads us into adversities. Is it because he considers us his enemy? Or the whole time is this his, his love? It's his love. Even with dealing with the unruly, disobedient members of a local assembly, that is not treating them as enemies. We read that in the scriptures. We read that in 2 Thessalonians 3, 13, 14, and 15. We're, we're to treat them as a brother. That's love. We don't need, sometimes we think what love is. I remember people saying why they felt like they were called to be here, to be loved. What was your idea, your consciousness of love, if you didn't have precise teaching? How far could you go? How far can we go? Well, how far did Christ go to deal with? with all of our sins. You'll see that in, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, Isaiah 52, and verse 14, and you can read those 12 verses in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, to see exactly just what he went through to win our forgiveness. So you know what he does? He takes account, he, ta he brings us into account with himself. By one means or another, he brings our careless security to an end. You know what careless security is? I can be secure in something other than God. I can have security in something other than his love. I can be secure without his forgiveness for another. Oh God. That is a very careless, careless security. But he will, in his love for us, bring us right to the end end of that. Notice this, it says this in the rest of these verses. In the rest of it, in Matthew the 18th chapter, it says, and when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Say, it's roughly, maybe we could say like 100 bucks. He had only begun to reckon and the reason is, he just began to look at that. But it says, one was brought unto him. One was brought unto him. I think it's very interesting. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? I'm going to carry you to a place where you would never have gone yourself in John 21 and verse 18. And that was after he recommissioned and gave him this beautiful commission in 21, 15 to 17. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. <laughs> he said, but I'm going to carry you to a place where you wouldn't go, where you would not go. This man had to be brought. Notice that it says he was brought unto this one that he owed this to. He was brought, he had to be brought 
unto the one that he owed this debt to. That's like us. Didn't we have to be brought to him for a debt that only he could pay for our salvation and all of our sins? Well, because he never would have come himself. You and I never would have come. And that's why God, he initiates. And the initiation is always his love. And in that love is this this forgiveness. Because we never would have come. He never would have come. He had to be brought. Because you know why? Those ten talents, those ten talents, he would have turned those into 20,000 if he hadn't been brought. Because the sinner, the sinner, unsaved, or the one who is saved but doesn't function in forgiveness, this, he thinks he has this some kind of security. But all he's doing is going up and treasuring up wrath in, in Romans 2.5. Now that's for the unsaved. Is there wrath for us in Christ? Answer, no. But plenty of chastisement. And the misery and the pain and the anguish of sin, living in sin, and living in an unforgiving spirit. Because, you know, he, the, the unsaved person is not coming. You know why? You know what it says in Matthew 5, 44 and 45? He makes his son to rise on the, on, the, on, on the good and the evil. He makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. That's just, it's just grace. And people unsaved. Remember in, in Psalm 14, 1 and 53, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, no, God, no. Not that he doesn't believe in God. He just doesn't want anything to do with him. He just continues to sin. Here's all this grace, and he just keeps taking it and adding a debt. And he's treasuring up, not us, but the unsaved for for wrath, because there's going to be a huge sum that they're going to owe him, aren't the unsaved, because they refuse the love and forgiveness that paid for their sins. But he's paid for ours. Do we have an excuse? What kind of an excuse do we have? What excuse? Oh, the flesh will come up with a million and one. Million and one. Well, they treasure it up. But one day, like the unsaved, like the unsaved, it's going to be required of them. That's the great white throne judgment in Revelations 20, 11 to 15. They're going to stand and they're going to say, and they're going to say, here's all our works, but where was the payment? You owe such a huge debt. Where is it? You don't have the payment, you don't have Christ, boom. Those that were in hell, after death, which is separation, then are cast into the lake of fire. Not us, of course. Not us, of course. But our, our time will be at the Bema seat. It's not a, a judgment, it's a place of evaluation. Wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, humanity, stubble, refusal to grow, Refusal, <laughs> refusal to forgive the grace that, that's forg- and love that's forgiven us. And wood, hay, and stubble. Hay is, hay is this, this uh, emotional outbursts, constantly anger because of the wrath that we can't do anything about. Of course, we don't have to. Christ dealt with it, but for the unsaved. But you know, it's like this... One, the one that owed had a lord or someone that had ruling power over him. And he had a debt. He did something he shouldn't have done. He should have put all of what what he owed should have been paid back into the royal treasury. It should have been, but it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, what is the royal treasury? I'm going to read what the royal treasury here as God, again, gave this to me and his counsel to me. In James chapter 2, verse 8, it says, But if you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, what's the royal law? God loved us. He did it by grace. He forgave us completely by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, you're saved by grace. It's through faith, dependence. And even that dependence is not of yourself. It's even the gift of God and not of works 
lest any man should have a reason to boast in himself apart from Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which God has before ordained that we should walk in those works that God, through Christ, had accomplished for each individual. But if you fulfill, if you function in the fulfillment of that royal law of love, Christ in you, you will love your neighbor as yourself. How can I love myself? Listen, how can I experience God's love if he doesn't forgive me? You tell me. Impossible. Remember the requirement, the fact that I ask for forgiveness and I actually accept it makes me responsible, the grace that did that, to give it to someone else, especially to brothers, especially to them. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to do well. You're going to experience that. But if you have respect of persons, eh, I'm going to take forgiveness and I'm going to give it to these people, but this one, no. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin. And what is sin in Psalm 51 and verse 4? It's evil. So not to forgive when I should, what is that? That's evil. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law that you're a transgressor. What's a transgressor? Someone that doesn't know better? No, they know better, but they do it anyway. Transgression is here's the bound. I know I should do this. I am not going to do it. That's a transgressor. That's what Adam did. That's why Eve, she was completely deceived. That's why women... In the, in the grace and protection of his love, never take the lead, ever. But only the man as Christ is his head in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, in proper order in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40. Otherwise, it's confusion. So much confusion in the church simply because there's role reversal. <laughs> there's a role reversal. And that's, a, that's walking in disorder. For whosoever will keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is what? Guilty of all. Now, do we, have we been cleared of all guilt? Yes. We have. But can we function in it? Where's the guilt located? In who we are in Christ in Romans 8.1? Or is it in the flesh in Romans 8 verse 4? <laughs> That's where it is. For he said, he that said, do not commit adultery. By the way, this is spiritual adultery. I go out on Christ. Okay? I go out on him. I go away from him. Even in the area of forgiveness, I, I just, I, I adulterate myself. And how do I, I, I go away. Adulterer. Said, do not kill. Remember when Jesus was speaking about this in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 22 to 29, he was talking about about anger, anger and unforgiveness is the same as murder in God's eyes. Read it. Read it. Matthew 5, 22. If you look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery by the time you have verse 29. Now, can a believer function in those things? Oh, boy. Well... Now, if you commit no adultery, and, if, and, and yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. <laughs> so speak you, and do so, and so do, as they that will be judged by the law of liberty. Freedom, no wrath, sins dealt with. Verse 13, for he will have judgment without mercy that shows no mercy. And mercy rejoices. Where it says rejoice here, it means it glories against judgment. God's love gloried in the fact that his son dealt with all of our sins and all of that evil, all of it. And he glories against what should have been judgment for us. And what do we do when we accept it? We glorify him. And when I function in that forgiveness, I'm glorifying him. And when I forgive another, I'm lifting Christ up and glorifying him. And when I don't, what am I doing? 
This is what Jesus was teaching Peter, and this is what he's teaching us, even in a greater degree, with greater light that we have, with much greater. So that is the royal treasury that he should have been. So then what happens? The sale, if he couldn't pay that amount, he had to give him his wife and his children. Read it on here. He had to give him his wife and his children because the king would command them to be sold for the money that he owed. Back then, that's how they did it. Because it rested on the theory that they were part of his property because he was the king of the whole kingdom. Of course, that was what Rome would teach too, by the way. (laughs) Oh boy. Don't tell me you don't think how that could end up in Romish theology. Not so good. (laughs) You can see that. What this is talking about. Part of his property. But by the selling here, when it says that, by the selling here indicated what? The fact of God's alienation of the wicked from himself. He, he, just can't, he cannot fellowship with wickedness. He can't fellowship with an unbeliever, and he can't fellowship with a Christian that lives in the flesh. There's no fellowship in an unforgiving spirit because it leaves God out. It just leaves them out. And so God's alienation of the wicked, that's what's selling, selling, okay, selling from himself and their eternal everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, the glory of his power. When the servant heard all of this and didn't have anything to pay and his sin would not only what he owed would not only affect him but his wife and his children, listen to that, folks. Husbands, wives, Children, sin affects. My sin does not just affect me, what I owe. It affects everybody. Thank God ours are paid for, aren't they? Don't we thank God for that? We can thank God for that. Look it, here it is. Here it is. He makes it very, very clear. Hearing this and knowing he doesn't have anything and the absolute fear and torment of impending danger and ruin. What does he do? He prostrates himself on the ground and kisses the ruler's hands and feet and says, Lord, Master, Ruler, please have patience with me. Please have patience with me and I will pay you all. Could he? Who could could of us pay one single cent? We owed a debt we couldn't pay. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. The fact that he even said it, I will pay, I will pay you for all of it, speaks of the extreme fear of that particular moment in his life. Extreme fear. And it made him ready to promise even impossible things. You ever say that? God, if you do this for me, I'll never do it again. Did you ever say that? God, please, if you come through for me this time, I promise you. I'll never do it again, and I'll never do it again to anybody else either. (laughs) Impossible, right? Impossible things. Promising even like mountains of gold like you don't have. (laughs) If only God, you'll deliver me. Mo Master, deliver me from this present danger. By saying this, and this is all a part of what's in Peter's mind and in his conscience, Still not yet completely cleansed experientially. Positionally, yes, but not experientially. And by the sinner saying these things that he cannot possibly do, what is is this thinking? He expects that his future, future obedience, and how many live there? Their future obedience can make up for their past disobedience. (laughs) Taste. Very intense. Well, the Lord of that servant, that master, was moved with compassion. Read the synoptics, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. How many times Jesus had compassion? People didn't deserve it. He knew they were going to forsake him. He knew they didn't want anything to do with him, and yet he still had compassion on them and healed them. Countless. Countless. Heals ten lepers. How many came back? He invested in them. Poured his life in them. 
laid his life out for those 10 in that healing. Nine left completely unthankful. One came back. Four hearers in Luke 8, Matthew 13. Four hearers. Only one had good ground. It's very interesting. Only one. While he had compassion on him, he set him free and forgave his debt. We think God to be very severe in this sense, don't we? But in God revealing this to us and putting our sins that are forgiven, but putting them to our face, it's really only his love in disguise through grace. Truly it is, by showing us how much he forgave us. And oh my God, God forbid that I should ever not forgive another believer for a speck that I see in their eye when I have the sequoia in mine, the beam. (laughs) Well, what ruin it could have been became the greatest opportunity for the greatest mercy of all to be shown to that individual. God will forgive. Listen, God will forgive. What's that mean? God's will is forgiveness based upon who he is, love. But he will have the sinner to know what and how much he is forgiven. Especially when we operate in an unforgiving spirit towards those that are one with Christ, who Christ has made himself one with. Oh, But too soon, unfortunately, with a lot of us, and with me in areas as I'm growing, but too soon this mercy is forgotten. This great mercy is forgotten. For going out from the presence of the Lord, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him something. You know the key to this whole parable is going out from the presence of the Lord. That's Revelations 2 and verse 4. You see the decline of the church in its history. It's starting in Revelations 2, verse 4. They left their first love. It's all about forgiveness. Then another authority comes in that's not Christ. They left their first love. For going out, they went out from the presence, he went out from the presence of his Lord that forgave him that huge debt. And then in doing so, he found someone that owed him. It's because we go out of the presence of the Lord. And the reason we go out from the presence of the Lord and his love for us, the cause of it is, is we don't abide there. Too many things get in the way. Too many things grab our attention. Things of the world, things of the flesh, grab our attention. We go out and we are ever in danger, all of us, as forgiven ones. We're ever in danger of acting just like this evil servant who was forgiven so much, millions and millions and trillions of dollars of debt and wouldn't forgive a hundred of the one that owed him. (laughs) Going out. Why? Because going out expresses the sinner's forgetfulness of the benefits that he received from God or that she received from God. Psalm 68, verse 19, he daily loads us with benefits. Daily. We take for granted the sun that shines, the rain. What would we be without even those? We take them. We soon forget. We take everything he gives us for granted and take them and consume them upon ourselves. I said the other day, some think they have great debt. They wonder how they're going to take care of their debt. I'll tell you one way. Stop pouring so much into yourself. Take account. We all need to. Take account of what we pour into ourselves and not pour out for each other because we forget God and forget all his benefits that he's invested in us and poured through others. We forget it. It's unfortunate. God forbid we shouldn't take care of our pets, right? Do the best that we could, right? (laughs) 
Well, unfortunately, that was this man. Boy, I sure don't want it to be me. Both of them had a place. Both of them. There was the first man that owned his master money and was forgiven. Then there was another one that this guy was over, and that guy owed him money and he wouldn't forgive. But they had both in common. They had different stations and places in life like we do in the body. We're all of Christ, but we don't occupy the same place in a local assembly. We may think we do with familiarity just because we see each other we see each other's faults and failure. You, you, if you want to see faults and failures, if you don't want to see them, faults and failures, don't get married. Because I'm going to tell you, you'll see them sooner or later. You'll see them because you spend an awful lot of time together. Just like we in the body of Christ. You know when we spend a lot of time together? Sometimes we think it's all our time and all our plans. And how God forbids that God would use someone else for another time when that's my time. <laughs> wow, forgetful hearer. God forbid for any of us. Amen? God forbid. But they were both servants to a common Lord. One had a small debt. Another one had a huge one. The one that had the little debt refused to forgive. Do you know what that speaks of? It shows how little a man can offend and hold an offense against his brother. Just how little. That's what Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. He said, yeah, they'll look, they'll look for specks in their eyes and miss that huge, huge oak <laughs> that's in their eye. See, how little man can offend and hold on offense against his brother, compared with the amount in which every man has offended his own God and is against his own, and his sin, which was against God. Remember that, right? Sin was sin is against God, by the way. I want us to see that. He wanted me to see it, so I'm a little. Psalm 51, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Is it evil then? Oh boy. Ooh, but thank God we have mercy, amen? Thank God, I thank you, Lord, that we have mercy. We have a merciful and faithful high priest in Ephesians 4, 4 uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, that we can go to anytime we need it. And God forbid we shouldn't go to him for others. Because I can't go there for myself and leave out others and expect mercy in my experience. I just won't have it. They found mercy. He found mercy. That one that would refuse to forgive the little found mercy, but he himself, and one man of God said, he was inexorable. As he went from God, he went because he was inexorable. You know, I looked up that word because I never used that word. Just want to let you know. Okay, I looked it up. This man was unyielding, unalterable and not the least bit persuaded or moved by the horror that this man had to what he owed him. And this man forgot the humongous debt that he owed. Well, he dragged his debtor with him and threw him to the jailer. He threw him to the jailer. And you know who will do that? The Christian who won't forgive, like throw him to the jailer and make him pay for it. I'll make him pay. I'll fix them. <laughs> who are you fixing if you don't show up? Me? You fixing me? Are you fixing God? I'm being very honest. You, you, you're fixing me? That can take away, subtract from my life? No, it can't. No, it can't. No. You know, the man that drags others to jail, of course, they'll never go there. <laughs> no, they won't go. You know, what, you know who does that? It's the man or woman that does not even know 
and forgets his own guilt that was dealt with. Remember the parable? Remember what? Remember Nathan when he approached David about Bathsheba? Bathsheba, but we'll say it the English way, Bathsheba. That was her name. She was taking a bath up on the roof. She was Bathsheba. David should have been in, David should have been to, at war, but he slept in. He didn't feel like doing what he knew he was responsible to do and the grace that God would give him to do it. So he let others do it. <laughs> and then he got up after a late day. Ah, I'm king. I can do what I want. Went right up there and saw her. How many women did he have? How many concubines between him and his son Solomon? Thousands. 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 He went there. He took her. He got her pregnant. His closest friend, to cover it, sent him to be killed. So to cover it, that, that David had got her pregnant. And that's when Nathan came to him. And that's when Nathan came to him. And look what he said to him. It's very interesting. This is what God will do to us. And that's what he does to, to seriously, that's what he needs to do to, to Christians who live in the flesh and don't forgive, who want to drag each other to jail. I can't be with them. They don't add up to me. <laughs> and I'm glad I don't. <laughs> so the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, you know, there were two men in one city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he brought and nourished up. By the way, that's how we should treat our pets. That's, again, that's Proverbs 12, verse 10. But please, don't treat your, your pets better than you treat body members. <laughs> Let's keep that clear, you know. Keep the investment right. Now, I can't do what I know I should do because I have financial difficulties. And yeah, I know. I've heard that one before, too. Sing that song all day long. That one little ewe lamb that he brought and nourished up and it grew up together with him <laughs> and with his children. It did eat of his own meat. Now, God, this is the word of God. Is that okay? Oh, you treat him like a human. Yeah, okay. Well, you don't, you don't even know God, your Bible, yourself. Of his own meal and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Gee, you take that one? That's right. I know some people, they, they couldn't have children, so they have pets. They have a pet. <laughs> I don't know who I'm thinking of. Do you? And there came a traveler in the, in, unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock, his own herd, to dress for that man, to prepare it for him, but took the poor man's little lamb and dressed it for the man that was come. And David's anger was kindled greatly against that man. How dare he do that? He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this man that has done this thing will surely die. He's guilty of that crime. He should not be forgiven. He should be killed. <laughs> That's not the flesh, is it, in us? <laughs> oh, boy. And he will restore the lamb fourfold. Because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Watch this one. Can't tell you how many times God's done this to me in my life. And Nathan said to David, You're that man. Oh my God. You're that man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king of Israel, over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. You didn't do anything. I did every single thing for you. You didn't earn a single thing. I forgave you sin after sin after sin. And what did you do? You know, when we don't give our sins over and confess them, you know what we do? We hide in them and cover them and use them as an excuse why we can't do certain things we know we should do because we're too busy spending on ourselves. That means that's his mercy, his grace, and whatever else you want to add to it. Well, 
Thank God his, he's not like us. Amen? The man that did that should, should die. Imagine if God treated us like that. I, well, I'm trying to think of when I would have been dead. God, I can't even, I, I don't know. A million, trillion, billion times? I don't know. That's why the Holy Spirit said through Paul, they that are spiritual, what's committed to them is the beautiful foot-washing ministry of restoring an offending brother in Galatians 6, 1-4. 6, 1-4. We're about to wrap it up here. We'll have to get into this again some more for whosoever will. Tuesday and Fridays as much as we can. This man's fellow servants that treated this other one with an unforgiving and an evil spirit, they saw what was happening and then they went to his Lord because <laughs> they were sorry at the anger and evil anger of their master over them. You know why? Because they had the sense of their own guilt. They did. The deep consciousness that they see sin in someone else and it's ripening in them exists, as we said earlier, in the germ of our own heart in the flesh, not who we are in Christ. And then we'll have sorrow for that evil. And what, we, what we're experiencing there is God's pure hatred of sin. God hates sin. We've heard this, we heard it for years, and I do believe it. God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. But you can be sure he hates sin. Can't even look at it in Habakkuk 1.13. God cannot have a thing to do with an unforgiving, sinful, evil spirit. He just can't and won't. And you can put a smile on it. You can dress it up. You can dress it up all you want. That's like what we said before. You take the little piggy that's a pet, bring it in, take off... Clean off all the mud, bathe it, feed it, put a little robe on it, put a little jewel in its snout. First time that door's open, that pig, a little pig is running right out, right back into the pig pen. <laughs> we all have little piggies in us. We were not of, in Romans 8, 9. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy stayed home. This, he has his pure hatred of sin. But with that pure hatred of sin is the love of his holiness. That's why you can never separate justice, his justice from love. That's why you will never separate God's wrath from his love. John 3, verse 36. Again, that'll do away with universalism and annihilationism, by the way. But even on its negative side, we, we see like his wrath is negative. Is it really? I mean, can you have? Can God be love, and not just? <laughs> can He be inconsistent with any other part of who He is and completion of it? No. And that's where it finds place. That's where it finds place. Listen. Thank God for our forgiveness. I thank God for it. I I do. I need to be reminded of it. Because there's little areas in us, boy. I'll tell you. We will categorize who we're going to forgive, who we're not going to forgive. We're going to categorize who we think we can fellowship with and who we can't. All based on what? Is it based on forgiveness and love? No. What is it then if it's not love? If it's not good, what is it? It's evil. And I don't want to function in that. This is very convicting to me. I mean it personally. And I was like, whoa. Okay, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you so much for your love and your forgiveness. And that you've give, made me a vessel, one with Christ, to go out. And as I ask for it and receive it and accept it constantly, makes me a fit vessel for that to flow through to others. And you have forgiveness. That's an evil device of Satan. I've seen it. I've seen it here. This lack of forgiveness. It's a, it's a device of the enemy. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, and explicitly, verse 11, be not ignorant of Satan's device. Stop being 
ignorant of his device of an unforgiving spirit. Because God loves you. But if you don't forgive, do you experience the love that he does love you with? And he loves us, right? He's made us more than a conqueror. So Lord, thank you that we are more than a conqueror through you. Much more. Much, much more. And all we, what kind of a debt did we owe, Lord? A debt that we could never, never, ever. I mean, if you gave us all eternity to think that we could live that long and try and find something to pay for it, it never would be found. But it would only be found in you, Lord. And oh, Lord, even as we deal with issues in a local assembly, and when we deal with them with each other, and when we deal with them in the government of God, in the place that not all have, but when we deal with them, we always deal with those that are in Christ. Even those that don't forgive, we deal with them as a brother and not an enemy. That's the proper way to do it. Ephesians 4.15, thank you, Lord. We speak the truth in what? Love. We rest in this love. And thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.